Hello, everybody. Uh, we're back again. It's another Shapo for you. Um, this week, uh, it's me and Amber coming to you. But uh, we are not alone. We have sourced a wonderful guest for you. It is our old friend, Matt Taibbi, back in the trap. Matt, how's it going? It's going well, Will. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing all right. Um, so we have, uh, there's, there's much to discuss. Um, you know, you've, you've, been, uh, you've been making news in the Twitter sphere as of late, thanks to your new Substack. But uh, before we get into that, I want to touch briefly on something that uh, I spent all of uh, last show ranting about, because I just wanted your take on it. Uh, sure. Matt, have you been following uh, the Lincoln Project? Um, are you aware of these guys? Not terribly. I saw a little bit about it on Twitter this morning, but what, what, what is it exactly? Okay, so it's like basically uh, all of the political operatives and like campaign guys for George W. Bush, Mitt Romney, and John McCain have come together to form a, like a, a sort of a, a pack, like a, like a cutting edge political ad, like viral campaign to just really get under the skin of Donald Trump and get him uh, out of office. So, I mean, uh, my theory here is that like this is just the rebranding of the Democratic Party where like the neoconservatives sure. are just they're just jumping ship because, you know, uh the 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 host body that was the Republican Party is rejecting them and now they're finding like <laughs> a, a big warm carcass in the Democrats who are just as long as you say that you're against Trump, there's like there's basically nothing you can do that will have be, make you excommunicated from the fold. That's true. Not not only that they they actually like those people better than they like people like you or <laughs> yeah. Bernie. You know what I mean? Like when, <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. When, when somebody like Bill Crystal or David Frum comes knocking to the Democrats, you know that it's just open arms. Uh, but they they have a whole generation of sort of young progressives that they feel completely differently about. Uh, in, in addition to multiple major demographics within their party that they couldn't give less of a shit about, so yeah, uh, it's it's it, that actually, I don't know a whole lot about that project, but I but I think that's something that people like you know Glenn Greenwald have talked about a lot, you know, for the last four years that we're seeing a pretty significant shift with the parties where you know the old neocons who were Democrats to begin with, let's not forget, yeah. Uh, a lot of them, you know, they shifted out of the the uh, Democratic Party because they were upset about the sort of lack of aggressive foreign policy after Vietnam. And now they're coming back and, you know, there's natural sympathico there. So that all makes sense. Well, like, as you said, like, they, they're they're always ready to uh, greet these people with a hearty hand clasp and pat on the back because to... You know, they think it's a brilliant strategy, like um, this is exactly what we need to win the election and get people who are on the fence to like come over to our side and realize that Trump really is a unique threat. But the buy in that like that these people's ask is just simply, I don't know, starting World War Three and not anything terrible like universal health care. So like for them to say yes and open the door is like, you know, the, the commitment on their part is nil. Whereas, like the the big threat from the Bernie Sanders movement was like, oh shit, uh, people actually want healthcare. They don't want access to healthcare. They want that shit for free, paid for by taxes. Right. Here's the question that I genuinely have: Is there attempt to sort of like ingratiate themselves or be obsequious to Republicans um, or even just like the, the far right of the party? Do you think that's like an attempt to? concede enough so that they will so that the democratic party will be allowed to live or do you think they actively just have like a merger mindset and just like like you know uh cross party unity is like their primary goal i can't figure out what their long game is 
I think it's more the latter than the former. Like, I, I, I think that this is not so much that like, oh, can the Democratic Party, you know, even exist without making these uh, concessions? Like, I, I just think that, yeah, I think they're, they have a deals mindset and they're like, hey, if we can scoop up Bill Crystal on waivers, you know, that's going to be, you know, it's like, it's like when the, it's like when the Jets got Ladanian Tomlinson, you know, they're just like, you know, he's still got some good years in him. That's right. I mean, you think about it from their perspective, from the Democrats perspective, you know, what would it mean for somebody like Bernie to take over the party? That would mean basically the end of tens of thousands of sinecures and important, uh, you know, sort of think tank jobs that all those people would have to leave because they'd be useless at that point. But there's no cost to bring in David Frums and Bill Crystals of the world. They're simpatical on all the important issues, which I think is, you know, we saw that pretty graphically after Trump got elected with groups like the Atlantic Council, when they got together, if you look at the, the list of people who comprise those organizations, it's, you know, it's basically a list of uh, conservative Democrats and, and neocons with identical foreign policy views who are pitching themselves as, as anti-Trumpers. And I think that they have a lot more in common with each other than, say, you know, Hillary Clinton does with, I don't know, a working class voter in Michigan or something like that. Yeah, definitely. So Matt, um, I wanted to have you on uh, because I remember uh, the last time we had you on, uh, that episode managed to piss off a lot of people. Because <laughs> you said uh, like Russiagate, all like this Russiagate shit is not just hysterical, but is like factually untrue. It's it's spurious. It's 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 not based on anything in reality. And you know, people did not just a certain segment of the population did not cotton to that idea uh, very well. They they weren't ready to quite quite accept that or bring that on onto themselves. Um, but now it's like you know you've been for a while now uh, made to be a sort of a bet noir, a villain of the of the resistance, sort of like a liberal Democrat crowd because of your skepticism on Russiagate. And, you know, let's be honest, skepticism to one is, you know, active collusion with a, a foreign tyrant for, <laughs> for others because of your, your, your many treasons uh, to Robert Mueller, Matt. You've been, um, you've been made quite, quite a villain. And it seems uh, like, like now, or at least very recently, you've become once again sort of uh, uh, become a villain. But this time to, I guess I'm going to use in quotation here, the left uh, for another uh, break, break with conventional wisdom that, you know, is not even that big a break. Um, so could you just uh, describe like what, what's different this time? What's the same? And like, what, what are people mad at you about this time? And, and what are they going to be mad at me uh, after this episode for? <laughs> well, see, I, don't, I, I see that as basically the same story. Um, you know, the, the Russiagate story, and I, I didn't have any personal big investment in it from the beginning. I just thought there were elements of it, you know, as, as a journalist, it just didn't seem to add up. And, um, I was noticing the thing that was that really made me nervous about that story was that I was hearing from other people in the business that they were afraid to voice X, Y, or Z opinion about it, that they were getting heavy pressure from their editors to stress some stories and not others, that, you know, anytime any kind of um, story that called into question some of the major claims of Russiagate, like, for instance, that the Trump campaign had had repeated contacts with Russian intelligence, like you wouldn't see the contravening story anywhere in the blue leaning press, it would only appear in the conservative press. And, you know, I, 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 that atmosphere made me nervous, because what that told me is that 
uh, now the, the news media is afraid to report stuff, even if they think it's true. And so I, I think we're coming into the same, we, we're entering some kind of the same territory. It's, it's just a different moral mania now. Um, in the wake of the George Floyd protests, you know, we hear reporters talking about how they're afraid to report certain aspects of the, of the riots. You don't see certain stories about damage done uh, or violence in certain news organizations. Uh, people are being shamed for bringing that stuff up. So, you know, I wrote a couple of pieces about that. And uh, it's, to me, it's basically the same thing. But, you know, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's essentially, a, 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 you know, the same comment about the kind of dangers of monoculture within the press. Well, I think also it betrays a kind of general insecurity in people's politics. Like if they can't be presented with, I don't know, facts and reportage about something and then still maintain what they believe, then they sort of are balancing everything they believe on like very flimsy and I guess ephemeral conditions of, of the exact moment. Like if all it takes is like, you know, a, a few people being like, well, this isn't right. And your whole world shatters. It seems like more broadly liberals, leftists, etc., don't really have any sort of like concrete basis or their politics beyond whatever is in the news cycle, like literally that week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a, that's a good observation because basically what, what we're talking about are, are two fundamentally different ways of looking at the news media. And I, I totally recognize that my way of looking at it is probably going out of style and may not come back. But, you know, I was raised in a culture where the idea is we just sort of tell you what we know and then, you, the audience, sorts it out, and you do with it what you want, but we, we kind of call it as we see it, and, um, you know, we don't worry about the political consequences so much. We're actually not even supposed to care that much. We're supposed to much care much more about whether things are correct or not, and there's a new emphasis in the press, and you see this with people like Wesley Lowry talking about how we need moral clarity uh, in the media, where essentially the idea is what you're talking about. Like we, we can't trust audiences to, to get the right, uh, come to the right conclusions when we report things. So we have to shape it for them so that they get to the right place politically. So we have to do, you know, downplay certain things and play up certain other things uh, and, you know, kind of put our thumbs in the scale. And for a lot of people, the defining story here was Trump. Like, you know, look what happens when we don't do that, right? Like, we end up with Donald Trump, and therefore we need to report the news differently than we used to. I understand that argument. I just don't agree with it. Um, One of the things you point out in uh, one of your most recent pieces that I I wasn't aware of, you have a quote from uh, the the Times editor, uh, Dean Bequette. Who, uh, who, who wrote about how, like, you know, and they, this was all said openly that they said, uh, over the, like, the year, like, the early Trump years in the beginning of his administration, he says they, quote, built their newsroom to cover one story. And that story was the Trump Russia scandal. But by the time of, like, the actual hearings or, like, the, the Mueller report and then the impeachment vote, 
uh, you like the, you know the circumstances surrounding that story you write had been mined dry completely, so that they had to do this shift where they had the quote they're going to look for a more head-on story about the president's character. And you, you the quote here is he says the day Bob Mueller walked off that witness stand, two things happened. Our readers who want Donald Trump to go away suddenly thought, "Holy shit, Bob Mueller is not going to do it." So, I mean, how do how do you view like the, the this this recent turn in like in, in elite media to be very like activist focused and and you know, like you said, um, sort of aiming for what they describe as moral clarity in as in a response to their failure to do the one thing that they were selling everyone. Like, cause I remember is after Trump got elected, it was like the post and the times were like the most important thing you can do is just subscribe to a paper, keep right. reading the facts, keep supporting journalism, get the truth out there. And, what a coincidence. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, this is like, by the way, what I, what I, um, why I still subscribe to financial times, uh, which had like, uh, one front page article on the impeachment trial, which amounted to them being like, this is what the Americans are doing, I guess. And like, they were not at all like, they're like, yeah, nothing's going to happen. Well, yeah, it's because like, yeah, literally Amber- it's a closed room of, of delusion. Yeah, because Amber, to the, the, the editors and readers of the Financial Times, it's like their stock portfolio isn't going to fucking, it's, it's, they're not going to see any movement on that one way or the other if Trump is removed from office or not. You know, if, if uh, you know, oh, if, no, if, they if, totally if a, would. No, they totally would. They just know that that's not was never going to happen. They just knew what like all of us, you know, on the show and I think ever, like a huge number of people knew it's like that was never even on the table. I it just wasn't like like what muscle did they have you know yeah but I mean it, it's sort of like they uh, Matt I was talking to you a little earlier about this it's like they they were pitching their readers the hard stuff and they they all got a they all got a sort of a Jones for removing Trump from office through our wonderful fourth estate and then when their supply got cut off they still had all their you know their all the all the base heads are out there who still needed the fix so then they had to find some way to like cut the news with fent to keep people from like you know <laughs> going, going you know it's clawing their skin off or calling up the walls and like i think what they've ended up with is this 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 model of like sort of advocacy journalism that that seems super like superficially left-wing and only the most shallow ways and if anything i think is a really a, a self-conscious strategy to to strangle in the crib any sort of like the genesis of any like even nascent uh like left-wing populism or, or any 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 anything that is the bernie sanders agenda can be like ignored and attacked um by seeming to be superficially by by attacking it for not being left-wing enough in ways that center around you know uh like you know identity politics issues that like to to make suspect any kind of universal program or politics is that it make that idea in of in and of itself sort of crypto bigoted um it, it seems like they're killing two birds with one stone here yeah absolutely that's a great metaphor uh the thing <laughs> with the dealer uh running out of the hard stuff it, and you know I, I, one of the things i wrote about was you know I, I covered trump uh his campaign in 2016 and i remember there was this moment it was like in august of 2016 where it was like a decree had been sent down that suddenly the only explanation that anybody was allowed to have for Donald Trump's rise was, you know, a white identity movement. Like, and that was clearly part of it. Like, I don't think anybody was not reporting that. I mean, any, all of us who were following him around were, were talking very openly about how he was using racial rhetoric to, to advance, but he was talking about lots of other stuff too, uh, whether it was NATO or the wars in the Middle East. Now, 
insincerely, right? But but he had all these other themes. But it, it suddenly became taboo to talk about anything else except except that. And in fact, anybody who stepped outside those lines, you started seeing articles about how the term economic insecurity was like a red herring for mm-hmm. racism, right? And then so segueing to the moment that you describe when Russiagate kind of collapses, that's when you know, we, they, they published the 1619 project and Baquet talks openly about how this is a, a rethink of history with the aim of explaining how we got to the moment where Donald Trump can get elected. So they're essentially recasting history to explain this election that incidentally they called wrong. Uh, and I just can't separate the extremely negativistic portrait that they came out with, which is basically that America from the start was purely a, uh, you know, white supremacist project to continue slavery from the stated purpose of that project, which is to explain Donald Trump. Another way to think about it, though, is like you pointed out, like, would there be any need for a 1619 project if Hillary Clinton had become president? I mean, you could argue that there's a need for it, but would it have found the purchase in an institution like the New York Times that it did? And I think like they, they pretty clearly the answer is no, because then they wouldn't have had to explain like, well, what's the, a country that wouldn't elect Hillary Clinton is obviously basically like a neo-Nazi project from top to bottom, start it's, to finish. Right. And, and, and I think that's it's, it's an important distinction that, that I think people need to understand that this isn't about the history. It's not about the 1619 project. It's about where this is coming from. This is the New York Times. It's the, the single elite media organ in the United States. It's it represents all the most powerful interests of the country. Are we getting this portrait of the United States from those people who are courting that particular audience if we have a different political outcome in 2016? And the answer, I think, pretty clearly is no, right? Because it would, be, it would run a, directly counter to their interests to, to try to present America as, a, as a, basically a, a national idea that's outlived its usefulness, right? Uh, I don't think we would see that. So it's... From a journalistic point of view, I, I think it's pretty problematic. Or, or you know, well, and it's, it's not. By the way, it's not merely journalism. And I, I want to point out that there's like a lot more. Again, like it's the 1619 project is like deeply annoying to me because it has been like seamlessly streamlined into public school pedagogy, mm-hmm. specifically because it is uh, it's receiving a lot of funding from NGOs and even you know major corporations. And public schools are underfunded, so they're just going to go ahead and take that, you know, they're going to take the the programming that is offered to them for free, which means a bunch of ridiculous people with a a factually incorrect narrative that they have used to come up with. Dubious, anyway, yep. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, fact checks, I mean, like James Oaks and a lot of these historians have already, like, pointed out, like, this is just a mess. Like this entire thing is a mess and the whole thing is being produced by someone who is, you know, I I don't expect historians or scholars not to be political, but who went on to the um, uh, to to say, uh, well, Biden's politically black. So that's being like fed into public schools. Now, people get furious when they learn about, like, say, the textbook, the Texas textbook monopoly and how that teaches a both sides of the civil war and bullshit like that. 
But the fact that they're allowing what is, and I don't mean that it's partisan. I mean that it's just like incorrect. The fact that that, that, that kind of, um, you know, just basic elementary school lesson planning is being fed, uh, whatever, liberal propaganda is being fed into underfunded public schools. It's ridiculous. It's, it's obscene. People should be deeply upset. Amber, like, but to your point, though, like, I like, you know, would this be, uh, would this have found the purchase it did under Hillary Clinton administration? No. But like, conversely, that, like, if Biden gets elected, like, the power of all this shit will be sort of, it'll be drained out of it almost instantly, even like among the people promoting it, because like, their right. explicit political project is like, you have to vote for Biden or you're like actively aiding white supremacy in this country. And that Biden, you know what? He's actually pretty good or he's, he's changed a lot based, you know, like he, he's now different than like everything he's done throughout his entire career to like put people <laughs> in jail or immiserate like, you know, every, every single living, breathing thing on this planet. So like once he's in the White House, what do you think they're going to do? Spend every day talking about how like he's just an avatar of like Jim Crow con- Confederacy or like is the, you know, the White House is just a monument to like fucking slavery and like uh, white supremacy. I mean, no, they're, they're I mean, like all that the, the power of that rhetoric is or the usefulness of it is going to go away immediately because what are they, are they just going to remind everyone who Joe Biden is every single day? No, I mean, like he's their guy. They support him. Right. But. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I wonder how reversible some of these decisions are, though, you know, and a, yeah, yeah like, they might have painted themselves into a corner. This is what I'm, I'm curious about, because it could be really fun watching them try to backtrack and be like, no, 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 no. America's good now. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think it'll go that way. I, I, I think, uh, if anything, what's going to end up happening is that Bi- Biden is going to be pushed in a direction where he's going to have to start adopting a lot of this language. Uh, you know, he, he's going to end up being going on the white fragility tour. I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say what, what will happen. But, you know, you're absolutely right, Amber, to point out how strange it is. I mean, think about how liberal America reacted when a couple of school districts in Kansas or Texas decided to try to, you know, put a insert a political message into, you know, a history textbook or, or to stop one from getting in. And now, you know, we're teaching kids all over the country all kinds of stuff that is a totally an anathema to how, you know, I think majorities of Americans look at their own history. Uh, and, you know, people are, are acting like it's not a big deal. I think it is a big, it is a big deal. Uh, it's it's gonna it's gonna bounce back on a lot of folks, I think. And you know, I mean, well, I mean, like getting into it, like it, it, one of the problems with this is that, like, if if you offer. A, a critique of the current moment. It is so easy to to paint someone who who offers that or or just point something out as being wholly against, for instance, the wave of protests about police brutality and George Floyd. And like you, for instance, Matt, have written an entire book on the Eric Garner case. And like I said, I remember when you and Perrine had your podcast, you would do a weekly segment just highlighting some you know new police atrocity that would just happen like clockwork every fucking week in this country but it's almost like it it's because you take the issue seriously that like you know you you might want to pause to say hey like you know is is this are we going in a productive avenue or like or or does our like it, it does people's behavior like betray the, the extent to which they don't take seriously how like something like racism and policing or just police brutality in general like how horrible and omnipresent it is so like yeah like when you point out like 
it, when it's gotten to the point where like where protesters are tearing down statues of Cervantes or Ulysses S. Grant <laughs> to just basically be like, okay, well, what do you really want here? Like, what 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 do we really want? Is the question, and I think people are get very, uh, I think they like both in good and bad faith react like you're like like to to ask that question is to is to be promoting. Like oh I I like the cops to uh to to kill more people I'd like more of that please I'd like less accountability for police departments. Well right and that and that gets back to your your first question about the what's the link with the RussiaGate thing like you know even if you ask the, some pretty gentle questions about oh does this make sense does that make sense in this instance again you're, you're right I I spent five years of my life actually writing two books about failures in the criminal justice system the one before the Garner book was the divide, which was also about, you know, stop and frisk and all those other issues. Um, you know, but to, to jump straight from, you know, seeing an episode like the George Floyd killing to all cops are white supremacist murderers. Like that's just unsupportable. It's not, it's not accurate. And it's, there's a lot of non-white cops too. So right. you and, have to grapple with a few just initial like complications to that statement. And and it's an extremely complicated issue. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. If, if you talk to cops, a lot of cops, you know, first of all, it's one of the few jobs that's available to kind of working class you know, non-college educated people. So, you know, they either go into the military or they go into policing. Like, so it's a, it's a pretty typical middle-class job for people of all races. Uh, and a lot of them go into the policing for good reasons. They try to do the job right. And, you know, as, I, as I've written a lot about over, over the years, the problem is the system is choked. One of the problems is that the system is choked up with all these terrible incentives that sort of require police officers to uh, hyper-engage the public in, in supercharged, physically confrontational situations uh, because they have a stats regime. Like, you know, if you've ever seen The Wire, you know about juking the stats and how you have to, how you have to meet your numbers. Like, the, all this stuff Excel, contributes to the violence. Excel spreadsheets fed. Yeah, exactly. And so there's, there's all kinds of things going on here that, you know, besides some, something that does exist, which is racism and structural racism, but there, there's also just bad bureaucracy and, and bad strategy and bad philosophy. Uh, you know, the broken windows theory was, you know, an academic thing that got out of control uh, and, and has dominated policing in this country for three decades. So it's, it's complicated, you know I mean? But you, it's not just let's kill all cops. Like it, it, that doesn't solve the problem. Also, you know what like I mean? That's I, a program that has, resonance with like a few thousand people on Twitter and is broadly unpopular among like any working class population that, I mean, like we've had data on this for years, the people that are most um, targeted by the police in, you know, cruel and vicious ways, those same communities when polled about like things that they want for their community is more cops um, that might seem incongruous or um, hypocritical or whatever, but if you do live in an area with crime and your relationship to crime is having it committed against you, um, you know, the, the general um, initial response that people have is like, I wish a cop would have been here. 
Yeah, it's funny. When I, when I worked on the Garner book, I, I sat on that corner a lot and listened to there, there were always debates on the corner about do we need more cops or fewer cops? Uh, and that was a pretty heated debate that yeah, you would hear yeah. even from dr- between drug dealers, right? Like, like the you know, little known fact, Eric Garner called the cops on somebody the night before he was killed. Uh, Garner, Garner had been robbed by gang members a couple of times in the weeks uh, before uh, the cops got, he was being harassed basically by two sets of gangs, the, the, right. the cops competing gangs and yeah. the street gangs. And there, yeah, exactly. And there was a, there, there's a thing, you know, if you talk to the folks uh, uh, in that neighborhood and one of the complaints that they have when they talk about race is they would say they would never let this kind of stuff go on in a white neighborhood. Right. Like they would put cops on every corner if this kind of crap was going on in our in, in, in your neighborhoods. Right. So the absence of more cops to in, in that neighborhood was sometimes seen as racism. Right. To other to other people, you know, the, the it was the opposite. Right. The, the police only come here to harass us and and they suck. But that's a debate that people do have. And, and, and you know, in those neighborhoods. And it so it's it's a, there's a disconnect there between what what people imagine uh the attitudes are in in those neighborhoods and what what they actually are it's you know the, and the, don't get me wrong there's a ton of, of very very like intense anger towards police especially after programs like the clean halls program in new york where they would like send cops into mm-hmm. buildings and have them checking your ids as you're taking out the garbage and stuff like that people are really pissed about that stuff and and you know everything else that goes on but, you know, there's a contingent of people who also, you know, don't feel safe and they wish they had there there were more police. And, you know, I mean, and, and it's it's impossible to, to I mean, it's impossible to answer because, like you said, it is such a, a like a, a horrible, complicated issue. But like, for instance, in the ways people talk about it, I've also noticed like there there's this there's been this big switch. And uh, when is it when is it appropriate and OK to be like ruthlessly politically realistic? And when should those considerations be ignored entirely? Because, for instance, like compare that to Medicare for all when that seemed like a real possibility or there was a real political like movement and momentum behind that idea. The way it would be dismissed is to talk about, well, um, it's, you know, even though it's like, according to opinion polls, probably the most popular policy issue in, in America. Right. If you ask people about it a certain way, like it'll go down to 50 or 60% instead of 70 or 80%. Or or to bring up, like, it's just simply politically unfeasible, unfeasible like how are you going to get Joe Manchin to vote for it, blah, 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 the Supreme Court. All of that's real. But then now that like that's been safely put aside and we're in this current moment, like on an issue like abolishing the police, like it's you like it's totally verboten to uh, bring up that is this popular or advisable? And I'm not saying like, even if you agree with the issue, even if you would. That's the point though. Like I I honestly believe that I think liberals, why do you think liberals glom on to whatever the most um, trendy, if unrealistic, but quote unquote radical position is particularly if it's minoritarian, like, we will never have to put this into effect. Uh, it definitely won't work. So it's low stakes. And also anyone arguing for, say, social democratic reforms that have the largest appeal to working class people of all races, of all genders, blah, 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 blah. They don't have to do that. They can distract from that and they can say, oh, well, it, actually, the fact that it's broadly popular means that um, it's not radical because what's actually radical 
is like this heavily minoritarian focus of something that's totally um, unfeasible and unpopular beyond what, like a few like, you know, NGO weirdos and uh, Twitter radicals and um, I don't know, academics and largely people that say don't live in like areas with a lot of crime. Um, I, I think it's very convenient. I think it's, I think that's why right. they simultaneously are deeply conservative on uh, programs that are broadly popular, yet um, they lunge to the, you know, anarchist left on things that like have such a minority of support among their middle class colleagues and peers too. Yeah. I mean, there's something fake about it, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to put your finger on what it is exactly, but the way that you, you can't engage on the issue at all is to me a major red flag. I mean, um, sure. you've read catch 22, right? If you both sure, read sure, yeah. So this, this, the whole abolish the police uh, thing reminds me of like the great loyalty oath crusade. It's like, are you for it? Like once you say you're for it, all of a sudden there's somebody who's like more for it. Right. And, and there's no, there, there's no possible way of not signing. Right. Uh, and everybody notices if you don't sign and, you know, it, it's people are, are continually caught up in these manias. Now it, it's like a style of politics that I think maybe Twitter has made worse where, you know, all the nuance disappears from lot, lots of these issues. And it's, you know, are, are you for us or are you against us on this thing? when, you know, the thing might be very complicated and, and you know, the, the solution that's being pushed is might not be feasible. There's something really, really odd about that. Like, I don't, I don't know what it really is, but there, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. I think to me, the tell is the fact that it's not being pushed as something that people need to explain or gain, like, um, you know, a critical mass of support for. Like, um, you saw this with, like, like prison abolition. And I'm like, you know, that like nobody offline even knows what that is, but say it to the sort of person it is intriguing to, you know, maybe someone who's had, um, you know, uh, let's, let's say someone who like perhaps in my family is euphemistically familiar with the criminal justice system. You're like, Oh yeah. Prison is garbage. It's, it's cruel. It's vicious. So what does that mean? And you'll have people like, I don't know, Marion Kaba be like, you know what? I'm no longer explaining what I mean by prison abolition. Um, and it's like, well, oh, then you don't care. You don't, this doesn't actually mean anything to you. You're not worried about presenting an alternative program because people want to know what we're going to do with the murderers and rapists. That is actually a legitimate concern. That's not like a, to say that that's not a legitimate concern just sort of like reveals the fact that you don't have a lot of experience with murderers and rapists. Yeah. Or, or how about how about what to do with the cops who kill people wantonly in the streets and then cover it up? What do we do Look, with them? I'm pretty. Yeah, I'm pretty. I'm like, I'm not a prison abolitionist. We got to put Hillary Clinton somewhere like, come on. Um, but to to if they were speaking practically about like, you know, uh, prison reform or even saying like, oh, well, you know what we want instead wouldn't look anything like a prison does now. And it's like, well, then why are you using this misleading term, except that you're more interested in radical platitudes and sort of signaling that you're like, you're not serious. You're not serious about this stuff. It doesn't matter to you. You're unserious. You have no um, political agenda. This is all about signaling your radical credentials. Yeah. I mean, 
Although I, I, I get the sense that they are serious about it, though. Some, some, some people are, you know, it's. Some yeah. of them. There was the, uh, there was the uh, op-ed. Yes, I literally do mean police abolition. Right. Um, and which I think shocked a lot of people, though, because I think the majority of people who throw that around are like, well, no, that's not really what it means. It's more of a, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, an intervention, you know, it's to get people talking. And it's like, no motherfucker, if there are people that like legitimately believe that in the most, that we should all just have like community meetings every day to decide to do with what to do with the rapist. Like, so you're going to have to differentiate yourself from them in some way, because right now what you're saying means everything and nothing. But it's, it's the, the atmosphere right now is, is, because you do have people who say, well, when I hear defund the police, what, what that means to me is, right, and they'll say, you know, switching some of the funding from over here to social programming. But then you'll have other people who say they mean literally that, like completely defund the police. But, the, but people are, are... Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. You've, you've, uh, you are uh, agreeing with um, Reason Magazine if, if you're leaving it at defund the police. They are like, yeah, hell yeah, defund the police. They're writing op-eds. Right. On it. So you're going to have to fucking, you're going to have to go past a platitude because it's fucking childish. Yeah. And, and the, the concerning thing for me is, is more that people are just afraid to ask the questions, you know? So you, oh, yeah. Because if you ask, well, what do we do with the murders or rapists? It's like, oh, cop, cop lover. And it's like, grow up. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but also it's like, uh, it's a question of, um, you know, I mean, it's so easy when it comes to things like uh, the police or prison to just say that, like, uh, well, our, the current situation is so evil and intolerable that literally anything would be better. And I think I, I do sympathize with that. But it does, you know, as a pessimist, I, I would always like to remind people it can always get worse. Right. And there are there are there is like you know, a law of unintended consequences that we're talking about here. And, you know, another like like, you know, for instance, like what would be the ramification of turning over? the functions of like law enforcement broadly to like community groups and like just individual civilians in like sort of neighborhood watch patrol gangs. I mean, like there are, yeah, maybe they could get hoods and wear outfits. There are, are, you know, they're nice community groups. Yeah. I mean like, you know, these formations do usually again, Amber, this is your hobby horse and uh, this quite often pisses people off as well. But uh, the phrase community it sounds nice, but in practice, at least in America, it never redounds to the side of like like the the people who want like uh, you know l- uh, less violence or uh, more inclusive uh, open society. It almost always redounds to like the the nastiest, cruelest, most paranoid people that this country is capable of producing. Well, that's that's the tendency of the community, though. It's that like it's uh, the smaller the the social unit, the more conservative it tends to be. You know, like families are more conservative than communities. Communities are more conservative than cities. Like bigger is better and comprehensive is better. And I don't know what these I mean, maybe they're all from the suburbs or whatever. But I don't if you've ever actually been from a community, communities are pretty fucking nasty, conservative places. They're very they're very um, punitive because, uh, again, the smaller the unit, the more it has to like ruthlessly regulate. No, no, I said, like another example of this sort of law of unintended consequences where people are really knowingly or not courting disaster is when you, uh, you, you wrote about um, the white fragility book as well. And, you know, we did a whole episode on that and it was, um, it, it was quite funny, but one of the things you point out is that like 
the the overarching like prescription that someone like Robin D'Angelo is pitching is to have race even more fully codified in not just like corporate um, HR shit, but like in the in actual laws that are enforced right. by the state. And like you've written about, like for instance, in in, in your research to the, the two books you wrote on this, uh, people who have spent their pretty much their entire lives as activists trying to get race. Or any 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 tinge of it, like just sort of drawn out from the sinews of our like legal legal system, and now we seem to be like reverse engineering the same thing, but for good, but you know, good reasons uh, supposedly. Yeah, and and again, this gets to this fundamental change in how we're looking at the whole race problem, right? But yeah, you're you're right. So there were it was a hundred year project after after the end of the Civil War to to get race out of the law, you know, from, and because race was in, in the law, even before the, the civil war, but, you know, from the black codes on this whole idea of, of a, you know, it's a dualistic legal system, whether it was housing discrimination or education or uh, zoning for, for businesses, it was a huge epic project, like on the scale of like multiple moon landings to get, to get race out of the law. And, you know, the people who work for the NAACP, those lawyers will tell you stories about all the things that they suffered in the 60s and 70s to get those last vestiges of that kind of apartheid state uh, wiped out. And now this and they and they did it in the spirit of, uh, you know, the the kind of Kingian vision of a future that we were all going to work toward where you know, ho- hopefully a colorblind society. We, uh, we recognize we're not there, but that was the idea, right? Was to get, to get race out of the law, to de-emphasize it, to start looking at each other as human beings uh, first with all, with, you know, with equal rights and, and all that. And now the, the whole concept of this anti- anti-racist movement, you know, with the lowercase letters that uh, Robin D'Angelo represents and Ibram, Ibram Kendi, is to go in the exact opposite direction and and say we pessimistically don't believe that the outcome is possible of a colorblind society. So uh, that's actually a red herring, and we need to focus more on race. We need to be more conscious of it. We need to be conscious of it, in fact, every second. Uh, and I, I I don't know. I mean, I think it's an open debate whether that's a whether that's the right way to go. But the, you know, they've, they've closed off the debate on that. But I mean, like going on this, it's like um, I, I mentioned in the beginning, it's a suspicion that any that there is any universalism in not just like the human experience, but in uh, in, in politics in general, like in a vision of the future that, that provides mm-hmm. something to everyone in a multiracial society has become, I think, for cynical reasons, become tarred as like sort of crypto bigoted. That like if if there's a law or a, a policy or even an ideology that isn't explicitly tailored to groups X Y and Z who are disadvantaged in our society, then then, then that is like a, it's a poison chalice for, to begin with. And to me, it seems to be it's almost like a once again reverse engineering. Um, sort of like white backlash and panic over like welfare benefits, where it's just like, well, I don't want my tax dollars going to those people. And now it's just like, mm-hmm. I don't want my tax dollars going to those people, but those people are just supposed to be like, I don't know, the uh, socially backwards or reactionary white people. The idea that they might benefit from uh, universal health care or college education or something like that would yeah. be to like pick the pockets of the, the people they victimized for their benefit or something like that. Yeah, I think it's pretty transparent 
the way that the, res- the response to Medicare for All, the proposal for free college, uh, and even Andrew Yang's universal basic income concept, uh, there were there was basically the same response, which was um, this is a backdoor way to you know to help the uh, the racist white working class at the expense of people who really who really need this help, right? And you know the, 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 they went after. Sanders on that pretty hard. I mean, that, that was a major focus of the criticism of his uh, free college program. It was a major problem with the Medicare for all. And it was a subtext of basically all the criticism of Sanders. Uh, and again, I, I have a hard time separating that utilitarian use of race rhetoric uh, there uh, from, from what we're hearing now. I just, you know, I, I feel like it's all connected. Yeah. And um, again, I'm not sure what resonance that has on what what who Sanders, I think, was charged with appealing to, like as as a base. I actually do think that like normal people who aren't like means testing um, liberal freaks uh, don't hear um, you know, a, a free health care for everybody. They're like, well, I don't want the racists to get it. Like they don't want moral means testing. Um, that's sort of a weird, perverse. That's the kind of moralism of of the of the liberal party that I think doesn't actually translate to a broader a broader population. I think most people are more humane than that. Um, but it does seem like if you are committed to just even basic social democratic reforms, you do have to just be like, no, I I also want health care for racists. Like, I, I'm sorry, like, there's no, you, I have, we have to have a floor of things that we want for the worst person in the world. And like, that's where you start, because otherwise they're just going to find ways to shave it down into something means tested and, and they always win. And, and explicitly, that's also true with things like civil rights and civil liberties, right? Like the the explicit conception of things like free speech was always that it was, it had to be for the person who you felt deserved at least, right? Like, like if you, you don't really believe in it if you don't believe in it for the person whose opinions you most strongly disagree with. Uh, and then, you know, when, when it comes to the social programming, you know, all the research has shown that programs are more successful when they benefit everybody, whenever, when everybody can partake in them. Uh, there's more support for it. You know, like the original Medicare program was wildly successful for that reason. There have been experiments with the universal basic income idea, which I don't necessarily agree with, but it shows that if everybody gets it, it seems to work better, right? And um, and this idea of kind of universal, compar- right there in the title, right? Yeah, exactly. And I I, re- I feel like you know this this criticism that it, it's somehow racist i think there, there's something about that that again feels phony to me well uh since so, so, so you brought it up i you know in case we haven't pissed you off enough uh so far uh let's <laughs> let's get into the other issue that, that that that's roiling um uh the the current agenda the current discourse and that is um th- this in- endless and interminable debates about free speech and cancel culture. I mean, I, I feel like I, I mean, like th- those two words just plop out of my mouth, like just straight into to a toilet bowl. I feel like, <laughs> but I mean, like it, it just right now it seems like there are two groups of people arguing over this right now, 
and uh, one group is a basically a people of uh, a group of people in in journalism, academia, and like the the pundit sphere broadly, who uh, when they're not spending time on Epstein Island are uh, arguing for you know uh, helping to plan the war in Iraq and start a next one, and then up until then had been dedicating their entire lives to getting people fired for like I don't know mildly supporting Palestinian rights or being right. against a war. They they've now you know uh, many odious figures have now incorporated this agenda to for a free speech and cancel culture for themselves. But on the other side if you're like uh, uh supposedly like take, adopting a radical pose against these type of people, you know, as as you should because they are many of them are quite odious. But the the the, the reaction to it is this very indignant uh, demand that cancel culture is not real. It's not a thing. It doesn't yeah. exist. No one's camp- canceled, but it should exist. Ba- like that, that's always like it's like <laughs> yeah, the unspoken cancel culture denialism. Yeah, it's just like you know. W- but of course, like while they're actively you know trying to get a guy fired from Pep Boys because of a meme he shared on Facebook or something like that. Right. And it's just like, well, what what is the synthesis of this of the of of, of just like the lady and the tramp, but it, it, they're eating a, a bowl of shit together. That's, that's, what this, that's what this seems like to me. It, it does, though. Again, it does like put you in this position where you realize how intense, like, kind of identity concerns have been. I, I almost use the word privileged, but I, I don't want to invoke the you know nomenclature du jour of, of of whatever. But it's the but like if I were to say, oh, um, I'm being abused in a racist way, or I'm being abused in a sexist way. No one would be allowed to say, like, no, you're not. That doesn't exist. Fuck off and still retain any kind of leftist credentials. But if you are being abused in a way that doesn't fit with, um, you know, identity based framework, um, it's like, no, it's uh, that that abuse doesn't exist. Uh, Nothing is wrong with you. It's completely fine that you lost your job. Also, this mostly only happens to super famous people. So it's fine. And it's like, well, if it happens to super famous people, then by extension, it means that it's even easier to fire someone from fucking pet boys. And, right. you know, I mean, like, it, it always seems like, uh, you know, I'm always sheepish about it because, you know, I, I have no reason to complain about it. Like, I have the easiest job in the world. I've never been canceled, or as they would say. But they always leave out the fact that, like, we've never well, been they, canceled. They would, be- they would they cancel would, no, you. No, they, they, they're yeah, actively they trying. To, they're, all these people are actively trying to do it all the time. And the only reason it doesn't work is because we don't have a boss or sponsors. But exactly. if, we did, yeah. if we did, it would be fucking over, like, you know, three years ago, probably. We never would have gotten this far. Yeah, there was apparently a mass campaign to get Chapo to fire me, a Chapo company co-owner. There's an entire kind of like, um, you know, torches and pitchfork kind of mania that's that's spread over people because I think genuinely I think they realize they don't have any power at all. But here's what they do have the power to do. They can't look up. They can look side to side, you know. Or if they look up, the most they can look up is like a podcaster, you know, or the editor of like a Bon Appetit or whatever. Like they're like, ah, we got him. The yeah. true kingpin in, in capital, the editor of Bon Appetit. Right. But the, you know, the editor, opinion page editor of the New and, York uh, Times is like, a pretty, pretty big get, you know. Uh, but like uh, one of the things that you you wrote about is, you know, like of, of these moral manias and of which, you know, the, the cancel culture. And I would I would I would describe as a moral mania, like 
everyone arguing about cancel culture right now. Just like, dude, yeah. just, 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 we're trying to chill and grill over here. This is our mindset. That we're trying to, right. yeah. but, but you talked about like how the Bernie Sanders campaign, both in 2016 and also, especially in 2020, like, how do you see this presaging and, and anticipating or being sort of a trial run for like the, the cancel culture algorithm to, to do away with um, inconvenient or arrestive uh, elements of the population or like a, a political movements that would uh, color outside the lines of, let's say, like the New York Times editorial board? Well, with, with Bernie, it was very explicit, uh, you know, from the start of his campaign in 2016, the, the Clinton campaign. And what was so funny about this is that if you had covered Hillary in 2008, you remembered that she went a thousand percent in the direction away from identity politics, that she oh, presented yeah. herself for an enemy of it. She was going to Pennsylvania and pretending she was the, you know, the, the daughter of a, a lace, work, lace factory worker. And, uh, and she was dissing Martin Luther King and, and, you know, distributing how pictures did she, of, how did she dis how did she dis martin luther king so she talked about how uh yeah like martin luther king's dream was nice and all but it took a president to get it done remember that uh, oh uh, wow full move. Full move. yeah and yeah. um and remember there was a mysteriously distributed picture of barack obama in a somali outfit yeah when he that, you know yeah, exactly all when of he us looked like a toad, toadstool from mario kart yeah yeah exactly exactly <laughs> that's right and so this this politician who who has a long history of courting the white in the middle of the road voter right over and doing the sister soldier moment that was their whole shtick now suddenly Sanders comes along and you know when he starts talking about breaking up the banks what's Hillary's response oh well if we broke up the banks tomorrow would that end racism and people were like cheering that at, at a debate despite the fact that it made zero sense. Like if you think about it for even 10 seconds, what does that even mean? But the, the immediate, what the, what the banks have done to like generational black wealth in this country, just in the last oh, like, 10 years, you know? Oh, the systematic. I mean, if you want to talk about systematic racism in this country, though, like the, the first place you would start would be the subprime mortgage scam, which was consciously conceived as a way to suck wealth out of, especially the the sort of middle to lower middle class black community like that's where they sent the most subprime mortgage agents was anyway they, that's a whole separate topic but they immediately pitched Sanders identity movement the whole Bernie Bros thing and look his whole uh, all of his platforms and his railing against Wall Street that's an upper class white um, male racism uh, uh, and that was how. It was just a utilitarian thing that it was a cynical use of a certain kind of rhetoric. And over the course of the next four years, they, they just worked brain to death to the point where his message, you know, altered pretty significantly over time. You know, he, 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 in 2016, he openly spoke against identity politics. He thought, he thought it was counterproductive. And then by 2020, he had adopted a lot of that language in his, in his stump speech. So, uh, and he was apologizing constantly for things and it was, they effectively torpedoed his, his movement. I thought used, and, using some of that rhetoric. And, you know, like, I mean, it, it, it may land on your ears awkwardly to talk about, Oh, like they can't, you know, they canceled Bernie Sanders. Oh my God. Cause it's like, well, look, you know, I mean, he, he wasn't canceled. No, of course sort not. Of like, he's still no. around. He's fine. But at the end of the day, he was defeated. 
And this was a major part of how he was defeated. And guess what? The media was 100% complicit in all of it. So, like, what does that tell you about how effective that this is? Like, you don't need, someone doesn't need to be like canceled in some sense where they have to like go away or like never be heard from again um, to, for, for, for this to be effective as a political weapon. Well, or even, you don't even have to shake broad um, public opinion of him. You don't even have to, you know, lower his basis estimation of him. All you have to do is convince them that the fix is in because, you know, every elite in the media is skeptical of him and they're like, fuck, they're not going to let him, they're not going to let him be president. Well, also it's, it's about lowering spirits. You know, that, that, it's, that kind of press and that kind of attention, um, you know, I, I saw it with Bernie. He was very sensitive to it. I think he, he was deeply troubled by it didn't know how to handle it. And it consumed a lot of his mental energy heading into 2020. Like, how do I, how do I be sensitive to, to all these criticisms? And at the same time, you know, sort of, you know, embrace what I need to when, and, you know, still talk about the things that I think are important. But the, the, the nature of this environment is that people are so afraid of dealing with that accusation with, with, or with having to ha- having any of that kind of rhetoric directed at you that you'll do basically anything to avoid having having to wear that jacket. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders didn't have, didn't have a choice. He tried a million times to get a get out of it, but it, it, it never you, you never do. I mean, he he was you know he was libeled like over and over again in the most uh, ridiculous and, and and obscene ways. Like to, you know, paint this paint hit paint this man as some kind of like a, a racist misogynist. But like you know, like it, it, I mean. The, the fear is not an irrational one, especially in the terms of like a political contest, because it's like the more you are talking about it or having to deny it as any like, de- you know, normal, decent person would if they're accused of something like that. It's just like, you know, the more it's out there that the question is asked and you're denying it, the more people are thinking, oh, well, well what's he's obviously covering for something. Well, or right. The, the, more, the, the more I'm hearing it, about it. Yeah, it's the old LBJ thing, right? You accuse yeah. your opponent of being a a pig fucker, right? And you know, if we can't say that, well, just let let him deny it. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, exactly. You you get you you put it out there, and it's just a, it's an extremely effective tactic. And at, at the political level, it, with Bernie, I mean, he wasn't canceled, but it clearly worked. It was effective. But it, what we're seeing at an institutional level across the country is that you know, with people who aren't famous and don't have billions of dollars of revenues, like J.K. Rowling, or aren't number one best-selling authors like Steven Pinker. Uh, if you're someone below that level, um, you know, a couple of, a couple of words can do, can be your job. And, and you know, it's, it's not even that hard. I mean, that's, that's a- it was, it was even more effective against Corbin because I think Bernie oh, yeah. on some level knew that most of this was cynical, but it was like, well, okay, but I have to like, I, I, I have to game. say something to clarify my position Corbin was such a sweet sucker idiot that he was like, Oh no, people think I'm an anti-Semite. It's like, Oh, but, I mean, it, I think it really fucks with your ability to control your own messaging. The thing that I've, I've gleaned from a lot of this, just watching this over the years is that people always initially over apologize in the moment. Like they, their, their first instinct is to try to come to some kind of, you know, conciliation with their accusers mm-hmm. and that's a mistake tactically it, yep. it turns it, it turns out that's always a mistake because they're never going to stop coming for you you know what you Treat should it like an arrest yeah, don't yeah. incriminate yourself yeah you know call bullshit on it immediately uh and that's your best shot you know i think 
politically, interpersonally, you know, bureaucratically, whatever it is, but people never do. And that's, it's an interesting phenomenon. I think one of the things is Americans haven't really seen this since the fifties probably, right? So they don't know what it is uh, and they don't have a, a strong historical memory anyway, but um you know, it's, it's definitely strained times for that kind of stuff. And, you know, I mean, just, just maybe a slight digression here, but I would like to get on the record officially that were I to have the power to do so, I would absolutely censor all of Malcolm Gladwell's books and writings. <laughs> I would destroy physical copies of it. I would scrub it from the Internet. And I would actually, like, punish people who, like, disseminate um, it, it, you know, sort of like Zamzizat style or whatever, like... Uh, uh, I, I would, but, I, but I'm not going to ask the state to do that. Like my goal of censoring and imprisoning Malcolm Gladwell for his thoughts and free, free speech, <laughs> this is a long-term goal that I'm going to take up after I have state power to back it. When I'm in charge of censorship, right. oh boy, you better believe you're going to be censored. But like particularly, <laughs> until from the, then. but particularly from the left, you can't beg the state to do it for you until you're in charge of the fucking state. Because guess what? If you're talking about free speech as like a protection the left wing has benefited from that uh, and if it wasn't for that like they're like in especially in academia like they they will they have ruthlessly purged anyone with a left wing point of view or or most or like let alone if you are critical of israel in any way so i guess i, I people are people lying to themselves about this idea that oh like free speech is only just uh, it's only just an excuse for like uh the racist and like you know eugenicist uh science people to get away with peddling their bullshit well i would argue too though that like the the argument that people generally make um against free speech from a supposedly kind of like left position is that they don't believe in that slippery slope they don't believe that um, they're like, no, you don't understand. We can just ban the bad things. Now, I don't believe in that. But even if I did, there's an additional argument to it, which is that I actually believe that uh, the horrible things that they're trying to ban are less dangerous when they are in the open. I believe that whispers are more dangerous than shouts. So, Purely from like a political strategy point of view, I think it is more effective in fighting like right wing thought to make sure they don't just to make sure that not, these conversations don't all happen behind closed doors. I want them to leak into the public. How else are we going to get a fucking temperature check on what these people are doing? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I and I uh, will. I agree with you too that the you know historically when we're talking about repression of uh, free speech. It's these laws were, are specifically created to protect minority points of view, uh, and and that's where they have their most utility because, you know, the the state has all the guns, it has all the all the political power, it controls all the major institutions, um, you know, press institutions. If you don't have those protections, uh, you know, the the first people who are going to who are who are going to suffer are the people who have you know, ra- radical or progressive points of view. And I, and I think there are people who are kind of laboring under this delusion that, you know, we're going to be culturally he- hegemonic now and we're going to dictate who gets, uh, who gets to be heard and who doesn't for the first time. And that's going to be great. I, I just think they're being, they're, they're deluding themselves. That's not the way it's going to work. It's, 
rather quickly it's going to turn into something else. If we go, go going by history, that's the way it always goes. I mean, and just like more broadly speaking, um, just just the 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 instinct to deny that you know cancel culture is a real thing that's happening because it's like you know it it seems like a silly thing to talk about just in general, but I think it's just. It's projection because I think especially when you're talking about being online or, or just sharing any political point of view in a public setting, I think everybody understands instinctively that they are riding the dragon, like they are riding a dragon at all moments. And like the way not to get noticed and picked off is to sort of pretend that it'll never happen to you. But like everybody must understand at some point deep down inside them that like the leeway that they have to for, you know, as shibboleths are created and destruct, you know, destroyed and then re re resurrected over and over again at like light speed, the leeway with which you have to like not, find yourself on the outs or like when the music stops is narrower and narrower and like the thing is like either you have some level of confidence in your own inner morality and judgment or personality or you don't or you're willing to crowdsource that or like are you are you willing to just you know be yelled at for one day on twitter and i, I think a lot of people aren't yeah uh, and and also sometimes these things catch people who have nothing to do with anything you know like they're if you haven't followed a lot of these stories, you know, there are people like David Bucci was an administrator up at Dartmouth uh, who just happened to be a supervisor of a department where this weird sex scandal took place. And he initially tried to help the people who had come forward to complain about some of the behavior that was going on. Uh, but when uh, it came time for there to be a lawsuit against Dartmouth, uh, they named him as a plaintiff. And he had a history of depression. He ended up killing himself. I mean, there's these these instant these episodes have serious consequences for all sorts of people. And being deprived of your livelihood uh, and publicly shamed and rendered unemployable forever is a pretty serious thing. I mean, I think people underestimate what that means. Uh, and if you haven't been in that position, or if you don't know anybody who's been through something like that. Um, it's pretty easy to be cavalier about it. Uh, so I, you know, I'm not one of these and people. I who's just like, want, I want to be clear. I'm I'm not being cavalier. Uh, the people I would like to see deprived of their life and livelihood is a very <laughs> considered list here. Yes, Malcolm, Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell and David Frum are on it. But uh, Matt, Matt, you bring up another example um, in one of the pieces you read. I think it's, I forgot his name, but it's a. Uh, it was like a. A Canadian Russian uh, novelist who uh, had had some position at a university who uh, uh, he simply stated that uh, he thinks that all like you know artists, novelists, whatever should endeavor to imagine other people and cultures different from their own and to like try to communicate. That, oh, to right. Imagine someone like uh, the life of someone from a different culture or environment than their own and should endeavor to you know, in their work to communicate that or to, you know, express thoughts or points of view that are not their own. And for that, he was, uh, he was crucified by someone who was then also crucified herself for lying about being indigenous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's so Soviet, the whole thing, right? The, the, the mistake the guy made is that he tried to make a joke. He said when he would, there was a discussion about cultural appropriation and he's basically a writer and he was saying, Hey, you know, that's something we should be doing, you know, as, as, as writers, we should be trying to imagine what people in other cultures are going through. We should have a cultural appropriation prize. Let's see who can do it the best. Right. Like he kind of made a joke out of it and it didn't really work. He got fired, but you know, mm. his, his point is kind of well, well taken. I think, you know, as, as writers, 
I mean, think about how many how many great works of literature would not be if we were prohibited from imagining characters who are very, very different from ourselves. So, you know, for, for, to be fired for something like that uh, is, is, I think, that's what I really, really worry about is that it's, it, we've moved away from, okay, this person said something really terrible, something, you know, overtly, grossly racist at some point, uh, and we have to dissociate ourselves from that person commercially too. This person said something that is controversial, <laughs> you know, uh, and especially in a, in an academic or creative field or something like journalism, where we want to, ex- we want to encourage people to think outside the box. It's really bad when there are whole areas that are now blocked off because, you know, you know, it's a danger zone to step, to, to, to step in there. Like uh, I don't think it encourages good work creatively or, or, you know, journalistically or anything. Well, okay. Uh, I, this, this, this is the last question I have. And uh, you, you talked about like, just this, what are the stakes for this? Forget politically, but creatively and culturally. And I guess what I was sort of left with is, is like the big word everyone is arguing over is culture. It sort of begs the question, what culture is being produced by the scolds and the witch hunters exactly. that is going to last even a minute after they create it? Like how sustainable do they imagine such a thing to be, a, like a cultural project to be if they categorically reject humor, sarcasm, metaphor, and just the idea that there's something universal in the human experience that art or even politics can strive to communicate. I mean, that, that's the question, right, that has been driving me crazy from the beginning, especially what I'm writing about now. You know, you think about the 60s movements, uh, you know, long before intersectionality was coined as a term, there was this understanding of the interlocking nature of ignorance and repression, right? So the, you know, there's a clear cause and effect. If you let Alfred, Alfred Kinsey do his research and let him publish it, then you can, the, the, there's, after that, there's women, women's liberation and gay rights, because now we know that certain things are normal. And, uh, you know, w- when you're free to, to conduct uh, inquiry and do academic research, it's liberating for everybody. This, this feeling of like, uh, the common stakes that we all have in the sort of project of living, it creates great art. And that's, that's why this, the, the, the left was culturally hegemonic after the sixties because of all the great art it produced from, you know, rock and roll to the blues to, to, you know, ex- abstract painting to uh, you know, the humor of people like Richard Pryor and Lenny Bruce, like all of that stuff is what carried those movements forward and, and, and it made it go down to people who otherwise would have resisted it. Where is that this time? There's none of that. There, like this, this is a movement that has no humor, no music, no nothing. And, and why is that? Why is nobody thinking about that? It's, I, I think that's a really, really important question. And it's, uh, it's also interesting to me that nobody's talking about it. It's, you know, it's a, it's a few, you know, but yeah, like I mean, even if you, uh, you know, were were very very invested in 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 this kind of, uh, you know, what I would regard as a kind of like hysterical anti politics. Like, if you would like to see it withstand the test of time, you got to have you got to have some art here. You got to have some cultural purchase, and it just seems to you be you have to have a sense of humor. 
Yeah, and, but it seems to be like they're mostly based on like uh, taking away uh, things that have, were broadly enjoyed before it, and like retroactively, right. like like you know, like 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 killing Sarah Connor before she uh, stars in the Terminator. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a great. That's a great metaphor for what this is. The great woke project is to go back and and uh, be, before the sixties and. And get rid of all the the body humor and right, yeah, no, it's like something they, they like send, that. They send yeah. the Terminator back time, and he's looking for Mark Twain, but can't find right. anyone because these people right. are too dumb to know that's not his real name. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he's not in the phone book as Mark Twain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's exactly right. Yeah. No, it has well, no humor. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess um, uh, I, I will leave it there for that. And I guess like I am um, uh, just sort of hardened by the fact that, you know, um, all, all of the all of the funny people that are good at art um, have I, I, I think they're 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 holding out or like there's still good stuff out there. But I mean, or rather, like how, how effective can any of this stuff be in the long run if the shit they produce is, you know, the, the Star Wars and Marvel's adventures movies like that's, yeah, they- that's the peak of their. Like what they're the the stakes that they're going for here? Yeah, if 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 what what they want to produce in the end is a is a Marvel movie that has all the right messages in it, like I, that's not going to carry the day. You need some other. You need something else. Also, you know? we already had that. It was called Veggie Tales. <laughs> Did they really? I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> it was like a it was like a CGI Bible show, like for children, <laughs> where little vegetables taught you how to be good. That is what they are trying to turn all of cinema into. It's just veggie tales. Yikes. Yikes. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it's a it's a yikes for me. It's a yikes for member. <laughs> it's a yikes for Matt Taibbi. Um, but, uh, do better. Uh, yes. We, we will all endeavor to do better. Um, and uh, till next time, guys. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Amber. All right, take Thanks. care. Cheers, everybody. Bye. Yep. If you like to talk to tomatoes, if a squash can make you smile, if you like to waltz with potatoes up and down the produce aisle. Have we got a show for you.